Despite it all, today Albertans chose to move our province forward by re-electing a strong, stable, united, conservative majority government. I pledge to be a president who seeks not to divide, but unify. Not now. I am a fighter and not a fighter. It's time for a change in this country, my friends. A real change. Hello and welcome to another episode of Battle to Talk About. And what you have just heard before the introduction song is the victory speech of the newly re-elected Premier of Alberta, Danielle Smith, at our election night party in Calgary. In this week's podcast, we'll be discussing results from the state election in Alberta and the second round of, that pres- of a presidential election in Turkey. And in doing so, we will be answering the big question, is President Erdogan presiding over a democratic backsliding. It is Sunday, the 4th of June, 2023. And joining me to discuss this and our other things is my co-host from the other side of the world, Sam. Hey, Sam, happy Pride Month. Happy Pride Month to you too. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing good, thanks. Is there a lot of rainbows and all in London? A fair few. A fair. I mean, London Pride this year falls on the 1st of July, so right at the end of of well the beginning of the next month really but um yeah a lot of gearing up towards it um it was york pride yesterday so um my two cities back um bookend this month in terms of their pride celebrations which is quite nice well i can just imagine the queue queue this month outside heaven nightclub it's probably (laughs) going to be quite long isn't it i would imagine so Anyway, um, we'll be moving on to be to talk about two places where LGBT rights are probably a bit less um accepting, in uh, and because the we'll be talking this week as we mentioned before about Alberta and Turkey, but we're going to arguably crack on with probably the most important election of twenty twenty three, and Sam, after being written off a couple of weeks ago, and we talked about it in our preview episode, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is back in charge and has been sworn in to rule over Turkey over the next five years, isn't he? He has indeed, just in the last 24 hours, been um, sworn in and appointed his new cabinet, um, which came after last weekend when he won the second round of the presidential election, which was the first time Turkey had ever been to a second round. And he beat the perennial opposition leader Kemal Tilic Daroglu um, by 52.2% to 47.8%, um, which was a slight narrowing of the percentage difference from the first round, uh, where the two of them topped the polls. But, Chern, how do you view these results? Did Did it turn out exactly as the first round would have suggested? Are you surprised at all? Um, I should say for listeners and long-time listeners that uh, President Erdogan won 52% of the vote, 52.2%, and Karic Karogulu won 47.8% of the result. Uh, I think I'm getting that that percentage is verbatim, and I'm sure many British listeners will be able to recognize 52.48 uh, very easily. But did this result turn out exactly as the first round suggested? Probably. I did think that although um, we did talk about in which way the, the third party candidate, um, Signet Odan, who, in de- who indeed endorsed President Erdogan, would voters would go, um, I, I was not surprised that in the end it was his voters were kind of split. But nonetheless, I think certainly compared to the first round results, these results are not surprising because if you only had won 49.5% in the first round, you are virtually guaranteed or highly likely to get in to win the second round uh, because you came so close in the first round. But then again, if we were to rewind back before the first round results came on, this is quite an astonishing victory, isn't it, Sam? Yeah, and I mean, I think I think you're right in suggesting that these results are not hugely surprising against the first round. I mean, we talked about how there would probably need to be a significant change in both the turnout or type of voters who turned out for Chilich Siroglu to, to triumph in this race. And yes, turnout 
did slightly reduce and seemed to slightly benefit um, the Chilich-Dragalu side of things. But then you've got to remember there was also a another candidate who had withdrawn in advance of the race but was still on the ballot paper, Murami Mince, who still gained 235,000 votes. He was a former CHP member. Likely all of those went to Chilich-Dragalu of those who turned out. And it looked like the Shinanogan votes split slightly more in the direction of Chilich-Dragalu, which I think was predominantly because of the hugely anti-immigrant campaign he ran in those two weeks between the first round and second round, because Shinan Ogan was a fierce anti-immigration candidate um, who did endorse President Erdogan. But I think that messaging was interesting. But yeah, I think on the whole, not particularly surprising versus the first round. But as you said, overall, still a very surprising race over the last six months. Or, to be honest, what they could have done is just simply not bothered to turn out and vote at all, which is something that could explain as well. On the turnout front, I think it is really interesting. I did see um, a news report that showed that where turnout fell by 5 to 8%, and we should say for listeners' context that turnout fell overall 3%, from 87% to 84%. So in this area of the country... It dropped 5 to 8%, which is the southeast of the country. And that is very much the more Kurdish part of the, of the electorate. And I wonder in some ways, if they had turned out or that turnout did not fall so much, would that have potentially narrowed the gap between Erdogan or Kirill potentially have powered him to victory? But at the same time, why did felt this drop in turnout happened could have been because as we hinted at in our analysis of the first round result, Cherish uh, really tightened up his message on the issue of Syrian refugees between the first and second rounds, and that in order to attract the nationalist vote. And in doing so, he received the endorsement of the far, another far-right candidate, And But potentially that message of that of a, of a much stronger message against Syrian refugees could have put off um, voters in the southeastern portion, the more Kurdish part of the population, that could have potentially narrowed it or maybe even brought him over the line. So just something to worth noting. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. So Chen, this was billed by a lot of people as one of the biggest opportunities for the Turkish opposition to defeat um, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan after 20 years in power. And yes, they attracted the biggest number of votes, highest vote share for a single opposition candidate in the three elections since the president became directly elected, but they fell short. So what is next for the opposition? Uh, That's a very good question. And I think, to be honest, it doesn't particularly look very good for the opposition. President Erdogan's probably, this was probably, yes, he faced a coup in 2015, 2016, but I will argue that this was probably his toughest re-election that he ever had to face as president. It was the first time that um, he had been taken to a second round in history. And I think I wonder in the next five years, whether the sliding towards authoritarian tendencies would certainly increase. He already has a big control of some of Turkey's democratic institutions such as the judiciary, such as the uh, media. And I I just wonder whether he might use this, given the scare he had, to try and press home or further increase the advantage and further make the playing field not not, um, uneven as it already is. I have a statistic, Sam, where he has already presided over a jailing and intimidation of popular opposition leaders. And... I, I and and two statistics which suggested that the election was not already free and fair and in this round and if it's not already free and fair now what it could be in five years time so for example Kiri Chiroglu was banned by the election authorities from sending text messages to citizens well President Erdogan um, used that to his full advantage bombarding citizens daily according to the foreign policy magazine and the other mm. one is um, the use of state media. Sam, would you like to hazard a guess how much President uh, Kirish Jirogulu got 32 minutes on state TV? How much did President Erdogan get on state TV? 
Well, I actually know this because I found this <laughs> myself as well. 32 hours. Exactly. So you're looking at a huge difference, 64 times more. And I think in a country, in a less developing country, you know, that is quite a big monopoly on, on media and a big advantage, isn't it? it? It certainly is. And I think it's why a lot of observers have said, yes, we had a democratic exercise and have done for the whole 20 years that President Erdogan has been in power. So yes, there are free elections, but is it a particularly fair level playing field? No. Um, and I think that's why the Turkey, as as quite a few countries around the world, it's very difficult to characterise what their democratic status actually is. Because on the surface, yes, they do have democratic elections. Yes, the opposition in this case was able to amass 24 million votes, which is a huge number of votes um, in, in a country that people sometimes describe as having authoritarian tendencies. But it's about what's going on in the background and whether this playing field is made equally accessible for each candidate in the race, which I think in this case was a pretty resounding no. Yeah, exactly. So I do wonder what the next, what Turkish democracy is going to look like. Sam, what do you think in terms of if you go back to the results overall, uh, what do you think potentially when we look back, were there any other takeaways from the second round about why people voted for Erdogan potentially over Kirish Yogulu? I, I do know one thing I will say is that when you only had two weeks between first round and the second round, you kind of freeze the political scene. There really isn't much for the opposition to try and make the two million votes up a deficit mm. uh, during over that period of time, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that that's that's exactly why I think there isn't a huge amount of change between these two rounds. I think one thing that is quite impressive is that, yes, turnout fell 3%, but turnout was still remarkably high for a second round election because... Um, I'm thinking of a, another two-round election we've covered in recent years in France. Um, turnout tends to drop off because people who voted for third-party candidates either don't engage or don't engage in the greater numbers that they did in the first round. Admittedly, in this election, there weren't really a huge number of, of third-party candidates. Um, there was only really one or two on the ballot paper. But still, I thought the, the maintenance of the turnout j did show a very high level of engagement amongst Turkish voters to either go out and vote for Erdogan or Cilic Droglu. And when you have that engagement across the political spectrum, you're not really going to change the status quo, whatever the candidates do. Because yes, we talked about Cilic Droglu's campaign being very different in those two weeks. He, he chose a very different path than his original economic path, which was very much the first round path to an anti-immigrant path. But overall, the numbers didn't hugely change. And I think here's a stat for you, Chern. Every single election that Erdogan has fought, including um, this, the two rounds in this time, so the four elections he's fought as to be the directly elected president, his total vote number has increased every single time. So he is a candidate who does attract popular support. It's not, yes, we talk about the playing field being um, uneven. Yes, we talk about the, the being question marks over the electoral process sometimes, but he is a popular candidate, whatever people um, say. I I agree. And I think he what, is, what he has also shown is that he has a big and crucially decisive base that's able to power him to victory, isn't it? And I think a lot of it is, I was reading an, an article about, in particular, conservative women uh, is a very often, um, is often a lawyer Erdogan base because he changed laws where women who wore head scars were previously banned from schools and for jobs. And he changed the law to allow them into employment and into schools. I have, and, yeah, and I think I think the one thing often talked about about Erdogan is he when he first came to power in Turkey 20 years ago, he was the great reformer who was going to modernize Turkey. Mm. He was going to transform um, the country. He came from um, not a political elite background to become the president of of Turkey. And he was a bit of a lauded figure 20 years ago by people across the spectrum in Turkey. Do you know, you know that that idea, that sentence you just said, just just an idea popped in my head, and I'd like to test this theory out with you. Is that 
I'm kind of using the, some of the playbook that the Conservatives used in the UK in 1992, wherein when Tur Erdogan was able to say to Turkish voters that Turkey is now a more powerful and economically prosperous country because of my policies and my leadership. Yes, we're currently going through hardships, but look, trust me, I am the person who has brought you up into the middle class over the last 20 years. So I am the person you should trust to bring me over, to bring you over this hardship into a better tomorrow. Do you think that, and the reason why I said that as parallels to the UK, because the UK Conservative Party in 1992 was able to say that, yes, we are currently in a recession right now, but look how well you did over the 1980s while we were in power. Therefore, you should trust us to bring you out of the hardship into a better tomorrow. Do you see parallels between that message working in the UK and that message in Turkey working right now? I think there are definitely parallels about it. I mean, there are a lot of differences. One is there was an exceptionally negative campaign being run by President Erdogan, specifically directed to Cilic Duroglu. I mean, in his victory speech, he said, um, I'm on the balcony, Cilic Duroglu's in his kitchen. And that was poking fun at the fact that a lot of Cilic Duroglu's campaign videos, which he was putting out on social media, were just him sat at his kitchen table in his like humble-looking um, Turkish kitchen, talking about political issues, talking about the economy. At one point, his most famous one, I think, was when he held up an onion and said, if Erdogan is re-elected, this onion will co cost you X amount due to the kind of inflation his government's causing. So there was a distinct line drawn between Erdogan and Cilic Droglu as candidates. And also Erdogan, in advance of this election, um, was using his levers of government, such as providing tax relief. He raised the minimum wage about three times. Um, he was providing cheap loans, energy subsidies. So, yes, it was talking about we were the custodians of the economy over the last 20 years, but also injecting immediate um, amounts of cash to show we have good times now. In fact, I think there was even... I saw videos on Twitter where he was handing out cash to children on election day itself. So, I mean, not really trying to hide potential vote buying opportunities there. And I think what we're fundamentally drilling down to the point is that Erdogan has been able to successfully exploit and present himself as this candidate with solutions to both Turkey's economic problems and security problems as well. I think certainly on the security front, his message was much more hardline, in particular, preying, for example, on the Turkish voters' um, fear of a independent Kurdish state, which we mentioned in the first analysis, the first round results, where he was able to attract nationalist voters. For instance, I'm repeating this again, he linked Kirish Shiroglu to fake claims that he would release a jail leader of the Kurdish Workers' Party if he was elected, and that was already taking... And that, and, and that message amplified on state-controlled media, I think really heightened Turkish voters' anxiety um, of um, refugees, of being under assault, assault for refugees. That message was able to tap into those fears. So I, don't, I think he was able to successfully, with the help of the control of the institutions, prey on the economic and security, particularly the latter, fears of Turkish voters. So to wrap up our discussion of Turkey, Chern, I want to look to the future slightly. So the opposition obviously came as close as they've come in the last 20 years, I think, with the exception of the direct military coup to removing Erdogan from office. They've got local elections um, next year, and the 2019 local elections were a good round of local elections for the opposition, and they're looking to push on next year. And obviously in five years' time, we'll have another presidential election. So... Between now and then, what do you think the opposition need to do? Um, step one, get a new opposition leader. I think Kerry Chirogulu has been around the joint too much. And I think it is quite obvious what Turkish voters have thought of him this time around. He underperformed the opinion polls this time around. And you can also look at the fact that he has been leader of the uh, CHP for, since 2010. And what, let's look at the record in parliamentary elections since 2010. He has lost the 2011, 2015, 2018, and now 2023 elections. I think it is perfectly clear that, there, um, that Turkish voters have cast judgment on Chiris Triogulu. 
and therefore I think a new face will be needed. Sam, what are the solutions or do you agree with that? And what are the solutions can you think of for the Turkish opposition to break through in the next five years? Yeah, I, I do agree with that. I think potentially we're looking at more of a um, Gabriel Boric type figure um, to to potentially come forward, someone more youthful. I mean, we just talked a few weeks ago about another youthful leader who's being able to um, disrupt some candidates with authoritarian tendencies in Pitalimjer Onrat. So potentially they need to look in that direction for some inspiration about what the energy needs to be because you need the energy at the top of the ticket to guarantee the energy lower down the ticket as well. So I just wonder if that might be an outcome. And I, I completely agree with you. I think I think Chilich Jiroglu's um, time as a frontline candidate is probably over after this election and they'll be looking for someone new. I mean, when we were talking about um, who might be the opposition candidate this time round, two of the names brought to the table were Ekrem Imamoglu and Mansa Yavas, both of which were high-profile figures in the 2019 local elections. So potentially next year's local elections will be a good clue to who those candidates might be. Um, they won uh, Istanbul, Ankara and Antalya gain. They gained those mayoralties in 2019. I think they're looking this time to gain Bursa, which was very close in 2019, um, significantly narrowing the result from five years prior. And this cycle, we saw it vote for Erdogan, but 2019 was very close. And if 2024, they can pick up that, they can show they're making gains elsewhere around the country, which they absolutely must do because the parliamentary elections were not close, um, despite the presidential elections being close. So they need more geographic spread. And I think the local elections could be a good time to begin that legwork, begin expanding the opposition um, appeal beyond the main cities because when you look at the map the opposition vote is very concentrated on either side of the of the country so if they can grow that appeal in the middle pick up parliamentary seats here and there show they're stronger in local elections this is how you begin that campaign because i think the seed has been sown in this election that the opposition can defeat erdogan and they just need to um need to keep pushing on if that's indeed what they want to do. Just something that's two thoughts that popped into my head. Firstly, is I think that you're absolutely right that the local elections will be a key barometer. And what better way to prove your policy chops or your electoral ability, winning ability to the rest of the opposition alliance by winning um, in the, the mayor for the mayor of Ankara or the mayor of Istanbul to win another election and therefore put yourself in better position to become the opposition candidate. I think that the next presidential election for the candidate for the opposition may come from one of these mayors who have that proven track record of winning in Turkey. And I think Ankara and Istanbul will be the cities to watch and the mayoral elections will be the places mm. to watch. And in both and of those places, in, in Istanbul and Ankara, and the CHP came second in parliamentary seats, quite a distant second in both of them. So if they can consolidate their successes on a mayoral level to the parliamentary level, that's where they'll start picking up the crucial seats that they need to support an opposition president if they indeed do win a presidential election. And the thought, Sam, is President Erdogan a drag on his party's votes? Or is he a booster to his party's votes? Because... It seems to me that you said that he has, and, and the results do bear out, that he lags behind the parliamentary election candidates. So therefore, is he a drag on his vote? They like his policies, but not necessarily the man? Yeah, I think I think it's interesting because it you do see that slight divergence between the two um, results. But I think nonetheless, to suggest that Erdogan is a significant drag on his party is not accurately reading um, the last 20 years of Turkish politics, because I think Erdogan is his party in a way that his party is him. So I think it's very hard to detach the policies from the person after this amount of time. I, I, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. He, he is the party and he is one with the party. Um, I, I don't. And we're talking, by the way, his People's Alliance, that means the alliance of all the parties constituting 
Erdogan got 49.9, he got 49.5. So we're talking 0.4%. But nonetheless, within that, what you did see is that the Justice and Development Party lost 27 seats, but the Nationalist Movement Party picked up one, the New Welfare Party picked up five. So six of them was within that. They only lost a net of 21. But I think there is a little bit, potentially, but we're talking 0.4%. So we're not, we're talking very small numbers, aren't we? So Erdogan is looking ahead to five more years in power. And I suppose Chen will be back next year to see if the opposition alliance does, well, one, go into the local elections as an opposition alliance, and two, whether they can push on from the 2019 results. So, welcome back to Ballot to Talk About. Um, we'll be moving on to the other part of the world by looking at the state election in Alberta, Canada, in Canada's oil-rich province, where 87 seats in the Legislative Assembly was up for grabs, where you need 44 seats for a majority. The United Conservative Party is back for a second term. They got 49 seats, down 11, with 53% of the vote, which meant that Premier Danielle Smith um, in office since October 2022, will continue as Premier. And she defeated Rachel Nortley, a former Premier herself from 2015 to 2019, of the New Democratic Party, who got 38 seats, an increase of 15, and got 44% of the vote, up 11%. And in fact, Rachel Nortley will form the largest opposition party in Alberta's political history. Um, Sam, it was billed as a close election, was it, in your opinion? What was your reaction? I mean, it was an exceptionally close election, I think, and we'll we'll talk about some of the indicators of that in a second. But my reaction, am I surprised that the Conservatives are still leading Alberta? Not particularly. Um, Alberta is Canada's most conservative province. The Conservative Party were in power here between 1971 and 2015, making it the longest unbroken run of a single party government in provincial or federal Canadian history. So am I surprised that the Conservatives are once again in power here when you look back? Not hugely surprised. Um, but the surprise here, I think, is just how close this election became, because despite it being um, such a dominant conservative performance in the past. I think one figure for this election suggested that 1,300 votes could have changed this election um, and made it an NDP majority. 1,300 votes, which is nothing. There are some seats that have a majority of that size. So this result was incredibly close. And I think as we unpack it, we need to constantly be looking in that prism of who who was this a good result for? Because it was a good result of the Conservatives to hold on. It was a good result of the NDP to become the largest opposition group in Albertan history. But did they fall short? Did the Conservatives underperform? These are all the kind of questions I think we need to be asking about this remarkable election result. The other thing I should say as well, equally, I think if there are six or seven New Democrat won seats under a thousand votes as well. So equally, if the pendulum has swung the other way, Danielle Smith would have largely been, you know, celebrated as someone who has managed to hold on to a party's majority. So because six, seven, you're down net four. So therefore, this election could have swung all the way to an NDP majority or somewhat to an election that somewhat maintained the status quo. So I think two examples were Calgary, Acadia, and Calgary Foothills. I will remember watching election night, Sam. It was the last poll of the final seat, the last ballot box that was counted that swung the result. Up to that point, UCP were leading until the last poll that came out. Wasn't so, it? Wasn't it the seven votes in Calgary, Arcadia? Something like that. Seven votes in Calgary, Arcadia. In the process, um, the Attorney General Tyler Shandrill lost his seat as well. So that's mm. how close it was. So I, I think I will say equally, um, uh, it could have been close, but it could have been a lot less close as well. And I think it will say one thing though: the fact that we came a thousand votes to deciding the outcome, it does suggest to me, Sam, that with the Con United Conservatives having 52% of the vote, that suggests to me their vote is pretty inefficient, isn't it? You racked up a vote on all in these rural areas, but they just nearly lost government, isn't it? 
Yeah, I mean, I think one of the stories of the Conservative Party vote is that they lost 11 seats in this election, but only 2.6% of the vote. It's because their vote massively increased in some of the most rural areas of Alberta, which I think is testament to some of the kind of policies that Danielle Smith and her UCP were espousing in this election, particularly on energy policy, which I'm sure we'll come to talk about when we talk about federal implications. But her party was incredibly popular in rural Alberta. Um, and that was offset by huge losses she had in city areas, because I think most of those 11 seat losses came in the Calgary area. Um, and that's that, I think, is the story of this election, is that the NDP was particularly successful in cities and the UCP was exceptionally popular and successful in rural areas. Um, in fact, I can tell you, this is the first time a Conservative Party, with the loss of the Deputy Premier Casey Madhu in Edmonton Southwest, has no seats in the provincial capital of Alberta. So all, every seat in Edmonton has gone to the New Democrats. That is how toxic Daniel Smith was, particularly in the more left-leaning um, Edmonton. And to and you're right, to a large extent, particularly northern Calgary, um, Daniel Smith was a vote turn-off uh, beyond that. And it, this is going to pose problems because when you form a cabinet, you want to ensure that you represent a swathe of what Alberta looks like. How can you form a cabinet when you have no representation in Edmonton and you have severely diminished expectations in Northern Calgary? And just to give you an example, she has quite a few cabinet ministers that she has to replace. I mentioned the deputy premier, lost her seat in Edmonton Southwest, Tyler Shandro in Calgary, Acadia, the attorney general, uh, Nicholas Milligan in Calgary, um, Curry, who was the mental health and addictions minister, Jason Luan, the culture minister in Calgary Foothills, and Jason Copping, the health minister in Calgary Varsity. So there you go, Sam. One, two, three, four, five ministerial positions you have to replace, and there will be rural MPs who probably um, have very different policy priorities to that in urban Calgary and Edmonton. And I think that's something to be said. The polarization of urban and rural is two. This is two elections, isn't it? One in rural Alberta and one in urban Alberta, isn't it, Sam? Mm, and I think this is an important moment to step back and talk about why um, in Alberta we have the United Conservative Party, because I think that does provide one of the clues as to why the NDP has been particularly successful in more urban areas, because the United Conservative Party was formed as an alliance between the Progressive Conservative Party of Alberta and the Wild Rose Political Association, which was a more right-wing, socially conservative um, entity that operated in Alberta for much of the early 2000s. So I think a lot of, um, I've been reading a lot of testimony from a lot of urban voters who are traditional conservatives who say, I just couldn't vote for the United Conservative Party because of their move towards the right and their embrace of the Wild Rose um, Association. So I think that's important to note here why um, it's called the United Conservative um, Party rather than on, on, the, um, on the federal level when you get just the Conservatives or Progressive Conservatives. Yes, and it was the Progressive Conservatives that were in power from 1971 to 2015. And it's a remarkable street or democratic election victories and i will say as well that what you did see is that the ndp and i think it's the other story as well is that the ndp i think surprisingly came into government in 2015 because of that split within the right between the progressive conservatives and the wild rose which is why they then merged to defeat the ndp government in 2019 but i should say as well that um whilst the ndp is center left they are not as left-wing as the federal NDP. And I think that's something very important to say. Rachel Notley has, in fact, fought with Jackmeet Singh, the federal leader of the NDP, on issues such as the Alberta on pipelines and stuff like that. So while she identifies with the NDP, I do think, and this is a good pivot to talk about the opposition for a while, that it is Rachel Notley that is probably, and the Notley family, her father was MLA for a long period of time, that has really brought the NDP to new heights. Would you agree with that, Sam? 
Yeah, I mean, look at the history of the NDP in Alberta, because with the exception of 2015 and this cycle, 2015 being when they, they formed a majority government, they had only ever, they hadn't got no more than four seats um, in Alberta, with the exception of 1986 and 1989. So four seats, they, they were basically a non-entity in Alberta and came from absolute nowhere to win the government in 2015 and now being the main opposition party. Because one of the, I think, standouts when people who are casual observers of Canadian politics look at this is they, they think, well, where are the Liberal Party? Why are the Liberal Party not the main opposition in this state? Well, the NDP wiped them off the map um, to become the main opposition party. And do you think that is because they have more centrist tendencies than the Liberal Party in this part of the world? I also think as well is that in 2019, the story of the 2019 election was Wild Rose and the PCs coming together to form a united right-wing opposition. In this election, I think it is the uniting of the non-right-wing vote coming together under the banner of Rachel Nortley. And you, you're right to bring up where is the Liberal Party. Well, Sam, I can tell you that I did a bit of digging and the Liberal Party of Canada got three, four, five, six, seven, eighth place in terms of share the vote behind the Solidarity Movement, the Alberta Independence Party, among others. In fact, they got 0.24% of the vote or 4,282 votes. To put it in perspective, that is, in 1905, when the party was formed, they got 14,000 votes. So they've got less votes in this election than when the party was founded over 120 years ago. So that is what has happened, is that she has basically squeezed, including the Alberta party, uh, which was the big loser in terms of third party votes. She's basically squeezed that non-conservative vote to its absolute minimum in an attempt to to maximize New Democrat and to get them into government. And I think that a good place to look at is the gain the New Democrats had in Calgary Albo. Now, Calgary Albo is a seat in Calgary, well, it's a seat in Calgary, and it was held, um, and the NDP gained it on the collapse of the Alberta party vote. Um, and despite the UCP marginally increasing their vote share from 45% to 43%. And why did they do that? Because the Alberta party vote collapsed. It was previously, in the 2019 election, the Alberta party got 30% of the vote. Now they only had 4% of the vote. And the New Democrats, which had 23% in the last, in 2019 election, got 49% of the vote. And I said the UCP went up from 44 to 46%. So that is showing the effectiveness of how Rachel Nortley has squeezed the opposition vote in, um, in Calgary to gain the seat. And I should say as well that Calgary Albo was the first, this is the first time outside of a by-election that Calgary Albo has voted for a non-conservative MLA. The last, and this was a seat held by Alison Redford and Ralph Klein, two premiers of Alberta. So these are former wow. leader seats that have now gone to New Democrats. Sam, a fun fact and my my long, quite long monologue um, Alison Redford was the lead, was the constituency MLA for Calgary Elbow, and she faced an election in 2012. Do you know who was she faced an election against as the leader of the Progressive Conservatives? I don't know. It was somebody called Danielle Smith as the leader of the Wild <laughs> Rose Party. Full circle moment. It is a complete full circle moment. And um, but it really does show, isn't it, that this election was about also her ability to hoover up all that non-conservative vote, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, on that, so we have a situation which, um, so Danielle Smith, the Premier of Alberta, was facing her fair share of controversies in advance of this election. I mean, she, uh, she was criticised for refusing to wear a poppy due to COVID rules. Um, she was dealing with one of her UCP candidates, Jennifer Johnson, um, comparing trans children in schools to um, feces in cookie dough. Um, so, and in the midst of all of that, you had Rachel Nutley consolidating the left-wing vote. So why was the NDP unable to get over the line in this context? Not only that, Several hours before the only debate 
um, the Alberta Ethics Commission said that Danielle Smith broke the province conflict of interest laws when she called her justice minister, Tyler Sandro, to discuss the case of Arthur Polowitzki, who was later convicted of mischief. So that was clear. Um, she, was, she was accused by the Ethics Commissioner a week before the election of breaking the province's uh, conflict of interest law. So why did Danielle Smith win? I think what she did was that you have to say that the UCP are very good at scaring. And I think it, she managed to convince just enough Calgarians of the economic risk of, um, of voting New Democrat. Because the last time the New Democrats were in power, it coincided with a record low, um, record low price in Alberta's main export, which is natural resources of oil and an economic climate, which was not very favorable. So I think she was very. She was able to convince center right voters of the of the natural fears of voting for a center left party, and that was enough to trigger um to trigger um them to reluctantly to probably vote UCP. I do think that in this election, it was more of a case of who do you not want to vote more? Do you not want to vote for Danielle Smith because of her past controversies, as you said, or because? of her things she said in the past, of how she's moved the United Conservative Party to the right? Or do you not want to vote for Rachel Nortley, whose time in power and a centre-left time in power is often associated with um, more concerns about how the economy is run? And the UCP was able to seize upon the fact that Rachel Nortley was planning on increasing the provincial corporate tax rate by 3%. Granted, it will still be the lowest in the province, but I do think the fact that the UCP was able to harness successfully people's fears of uh, of the New Democrats. And Daniel Smith was proposing a law to be legislated that mm. if you want, if Alberta is to have a tax increase in the future, it would have to be done so by referendum. So that was the clear compare and contrast that she was able to offer. And I think the final point to mention is... Uh, the fact that she actually had quite a good debate performance as well. She is quite a good communicator. And I do note the vote, the, the, the polls, which were quite close in terms of vote share leading up to debate, began to widen post-debate. So three things I would say overall. Firstly, Alberta's political makeup, which mm. I will talk about later. Secondly, um, the rather effective UCP campaign, particularly on economics. And thirdly, the debate performance. I, I agree with all of those things. And I think... I think the economy is is an interesting one because how many times in the last six to 12 months have we sat down to discuss election results where the economy of that country is not performing particularly well at the moment, they're in the middle of a cost of living crisis. But interestingly, Alberta's economy is actually pretty robust at the moment. I think they're projected a budget surplus for the next um, fiscal year, so they're in good economic conditions. And when you have that, it's very difficult for an opposition to to criticise the incumbents for bad policy making because there is um, a strong economic situation. And I think talking about that corporation tax rise, I wonder if people thought, well, why do you need a corporation tax rise? Because if we're in budget surplus, it's not as if you need extra revenue. Um, and I wonder if people saw that and saw, well, this is just unnecessary i mean whether you dis whether you agree with it or disagree with it i wonder if the conservatives were able to tap into saying well it's not sound economics because we have a budget surplus we don't need that revenue and daniel smith did take a lot of credit on the province good economic rebound mm. since covid and say look how we managed the economy compared to when the ndp were in government and how they managed the economy as well was this so that was, was like, this an yeah, election that daniel smith's predecessor jason kenney was just incapable of winning if he was still there i i think the other and i think potentially he could it would have been he might have lost the election because the one thing Danielle Smith did by shifting the UCP closer to the right was kill off the Wild Rose Independence Party, which was the further right party. So I do wonder if that split factor were to take place, particularly since we saw how motivated non-conservative voters were to vote for the NDP, this election could have been lost if not for Danielle Smith successfully being able to unite the right against the bigger threat of the NDP. So potentially, I would argue that Jason Kenney would have lost this election. And speaking of Danielle Smith, um, do you think, Sam, that she was an asset to her party or did they win the election despite of Danielle Smith? 
I think it's a tricky question. Um, her approval rating when they last um, did the approval of all the premieres across Alberta was amongst the lowest at 46%, but it was a significant improvement on her predecessor, Jason Kenney, the year before, who was widely criticised for his COVID response, which is why I asked that why I asked that question, because I think Daniel Smith was able to decouple herself from the COVID record of the UCP in this election. But at the same time, I think she was a bit of a liability throughout this campaign. We've talked about some of the gaffes um, and scandals that were surrounding her going into this election. Um, but then you said her debate performance was pretty strong and the NDP ran almost exclusively on an anti-Danielle Smith campaign, talking about her inability to lead, her policy making, her personal social conservative background, and yet it didn't seem to cut through. So if you have a very personality-driven campaign that people seemingly disagree with, it does make you wonder whether she was an asset after all. And I should say as well that I think the 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 U, but the the advantage that uh, the UCP has is that because they control the rurals and it's basically a lot on those rural ridings. You know the old saying that you just need a dog in a UCP rosette and they will automatically be the MLA. I think applies to a lot of rural ridings. It means that you just therefore have to concentrate on that key seats in Calgary and around Calgary and around Edmonton that will decide government. Whereas from the NDP's perspective, you have to spread your resources out over a wider set of ridings. And the so NDP basically the... needed to run the board if they were going to win this election. They needed to pick up every seat, basically, that they that they used to hold back in 2015, which was always going to be a challenge because they they did exceptionally well. Exactly. So I think that cannot be understated by the structural advantage that the UCP had and whether Danielle Smith... I think you're right. It's hard to tell whether it was to her credit that she was able to unite the right, but it probably means, Sam, that while she's able to bring them over the line, she probably has a, a high floor but a low ceiling in terms of what riding she's able to win mm. in an election and what riding she could potentially win as leader, isn't it? I wonder if you say, I wonder if it's fair to say that she's a liability in office but an asset on the campaign. Possibly. But then, at the longer you're in government, you can't. The harder it is to run away from your record, isn't it? Because yeah. the issue is. I mean, let's look at previous um, conservative leaders to try and work out what the potential fate of Danielle Smith is going to be. Because um, the the last conservative leader to win multiple successive elections was Ralph Klein across 1993, 97, 2001, and 2004. Every single Conservative leader since then who's won an election has been gone by the time the next one came around. So is Daniel Smith going to face that same fate? Well, I love it that we had the same statistics because that was my next sentence I was about to lead <laughs> upon. And Ralph Klein was the last United Conservative leader from a uh, progressive Conservative leader, I should say, from 1997-2001 to serve a full term, a full mm -hmm. four-year term. Um, so can Daniel Smith stay? I think her chances are better because she lost so many urban ridings who potentially would have elected MLAs who are much more critical of her. <laughs> um, it meant her caucus is much more united behind what she wants and her brand of conservatism, isn't it, Sam? So in some ways, although this is a bad result, she could actually um, become one of the first few conservative leaders to, um, to stay in office with support from MLAs. That being mm. said, she does face an automatic leadership review after an election. And that's what doomed Jason Kenney last time round. It was the leadership review, which I think gave him 51% of members' approval. That was what doomed her. But I do think Danielle Smith, because of the membership, which skews much more to rural areas, more committed activists, that she is quite popular among the activist face. So I think that will save her. But nonetheless, I think Danielle Smith's worst enemy to serving a full term is Danielle Smith. <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't I couldn't have put it better myself. I think it's going to be a tricky road for Danielle Smith, um, which leads me nicely on to the, what I was going to ask first, but I think is, is even better to ask later on, which is who was the winner in this election? Who did better or did nobody win? Um, I think that's a very good question. I mean, obviously the Conservatives won because they're forming a majority government, but they lost 11 seats. 
the NDP became the largest opposition party in Albertan history. Um, but neither party can really walk away saying they achieved exactly what they wanted to achieve. So how do you raise it? I think the biggest winner is Justin Trudeau, in a way. Um, because you're, you said exactly right, the UCP are back, but they not only have an Edmonton problem, they have a growing Calgary problem. And let's be frank, it's in the cities where the population is growing. So if new ridings are created, they're likely to be created in Edmonton and Calgary, where already the UCP party, uh, where Daniel Smith is more unpopular, so they could face long-term problems. Rachel Nortley would think, well, I brought my party so close now, but the reality is, is that she's now a two-term election loser, Sam. She's lost two elections in 2019 and 2023, and yet she's still staying on. So do you think Rachel Nortley should resign, Sam? I think... I think it's unlikely that Rachel Notley leads the NDP into the next election, but equally I think it's unlikely that she resigns any time soon because the NDP, as we've said multiple times, is now the largest opposition party in Albertan history. I think it needs the stability and momentum of someone remaining their leader, but once things have settled, once their opposition is in action, I really can't see her leading them into another election um, because Yes, she's their biggest election winner, and I think there's a big legacy around that, which is why she's been able to to remain for all that time since then. But I think you then do need to start to wonder, is she becoming a bit of a liability because of how because of that legacy, and do we need to look towards someone else? So yes and no, it probably won't be immediate, but I think it will be within the next four years. I do think so too. And then, and that brings me on to the federal leaders. Pierre Polyev might think, oh yes, I have another conservative premier around. But now he has seen that even in Edmonton, they lost seats in 2021. Calgary now they've lost seats. And there clearly is, I think, Sam, once you have broken the mold and voted for a party in which you've been trained all your life to vote for, for the first time, which is what a lot of people in this election mm. did for voting for the NDP, it then becomes easier in the next election to not vote for the party, which you spend most of your life, bar the last one, voting for, mm. isn't it? So now you have a growing cohort of urban voters in Alberta who have voted for a non-conservative party for the first time. And who knows, they might transfer their allegiance onto a federal level as well. And that's why I say Justin Trudeau is also a winner in this, because A, he can fight and show off more his climate credentials against Danielle Smith. And secondly... What he did in 2019 to successfully win was to frame the Conservative leader and closely associate them with unpopular Conservative state premiers. Well, with Daniel Smith hanging around, he can link the federal opposition leader, Pierre Polyev, with Danielle Smith and all the controversies she had over COVID restrictions whatsoever. And that will be particularly unpopular to some of the Toronto suburbs where the federal election is being decided. So I do think that although the Liberals got 0.24%, I think he will be thinking that it's nice to have somebody to fight against and to show off to your progressive voters that he is caring about climate change and he is trying to say that say that the alternative in a conservative leader is far worse, isn't it, Sam? Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And it, it is interesting trying to extract federal implications from this election because it isn't um, a liberal conservative contest. But in the federal election, the Liberals are a factor. In fact, um, they finished on the same seat count as the NDP in 2021 and had 15.5% of the vote here. And I just wonder if it'll be good news for the Liberals that they can come in and say, you've just had a provincial election where you didn't really like either of the candidates. You sort of went for a loose Conservative majority, but NDP strong. I'm the third party who is the sort of more appealing party in this election. And I just wonder if the Liberals could actually benefit in Alberta because of the mess of this election that they weren't actually involved in. And more importantly, Justin Trudeau needs is currently running a minority government. And I think where one of the big factors they're missing from his coalition to get a majority of the Liberals is urban seats in Western Canada. And I think now he's going to be looking at urban Edmonton, urban Calgary, and trying to persuade the voters that voted for the NDP at a provincial level to vote for the Liberals at a federal level. Mm. Um, but that being said, though, I think it's interesting that at a provincial level, we see this in British Columbia, we see this in Saskatchewan, we see this in Alberta, we're seeing this in Manitoba. It's not the Liberals that are at the second place, it is the New Democrats. Mm. 
So is this potentially an opportunity for Jack Meet Sin? Or is it because of the fact that we tend to get liberal governments and at national level, you do not like the liberal governments at a provincial level, but you want to vote for a centre-left party, you know at federal level the New Democrats are very different from the provincial New Democrats, which are much more centrist, so therefore they're much more a safer option with no federal association. So untangling that is going to be much more difficult for both the New Democrats and the Liberals at federal level, don't you agree? I, I, think, I think it will be very interesting to watch what goes on here, but... I can't help but think that for the Federal Conservative Party, there's nothing but negative news from this election because Alberta is Canada's most conservative province and you've fallen back 11 seats. You have the, clo the narrowest gap between your party and the opposition that the province has ever seen. And if these results are replicated on the provincial level, yes, we talk about the NDP and Liberals sort of being a bit interchangeable on the federal level, but if the Conservative results are replicated on the federal level, that's nothing but bad news for a party that is already outside of government. Um, and if they can't be pushing on in their most conservative provinces, you can't really expect them necessarily to be pushing on in their more tricky areas of Canada. Well, I think Saskatchewan might say that, hey, we might be the most conservative province in Canada. They also, they have all 14 MPs from the, uh, represented by the federal conservatives and the Saskatchewan party, which is the main centre-right party, been in government since 2007. So maybe Saskatchewan might be quite offended by those last remarks. <laughs> Um, and maybe Heather Stephenson will have something to say about it later in the year um, when Manitoba goes to the polls as well. And it will mean, Sam, that there will be a female premier out at the capital, at the provincial table because Heather Stephenson, as we're going to be discussing Manitoba, could likely lose. But then again, Alberta was always, Sam, a female versus female contest for the second time in Alberta's history. You don't often see that, don't we? Exactly. Time is fast running out, Sam. And let's just, as a final concluding thought, what is your takeaways from both set of elections? I think one takeaway from both of them that is a similarity between two very, very different elections is that the incumbent can be really pushed and be under a lot of strain and be facing a lot of controversy and be not necessarily in um, the most favourable of climates. For um, for Daniel Smith, it's actually her own personality. And for Erdogan, it's the earthquake, it's the economics, it's the 80% inflation, and yet still managed to eke out a win just by the legacy of them, their party, the place they're in. Because in Alberta, it's one of the most conservative areas. So when push comes to shove, they'll likely vote conservative despite what's going on at the top of the ticket. And then in Turkey, you have Erdogan, who's established such a power base that he's very successful there. He plays on um, the religious divide within the country and also the legacy of Ataturk and the um, Turkish, um, Turkish state and Turkish national identity. So I think it's there are two elections which prove that the personality at the top, yes, is important, but potentially the legacy of the country um, trumps all when it comes to difficult elections. Yeah, I think my takeaway was something similar. And I think my final comment is, we often talk about the growth of cities, but in some places, this is an election that was because the decisive voters were all in rural areas. Mm -hmm. And rural Alberta saved Daniel Smith, and rural Turkey saved President Erdogan. I have a fantastic statistic here. The opposition holds mayoral seats in Turkey in the six biggest cities by population. If you combine all the areas in which the Turkish uh, voted for Kirichioglu, how much economic contribution did they contribute to Turkey overall? I'm not sure. That's a good stat, though. The answer is 75%. So wow. in areas where 70... So areas that contribute to 75% of Turkey's economy, it voted for Kirichioglu. Erdogan, this was an election won in rural Turkey, and because of the UCP's strength in rural areas and the donut around Edmonton, in the donut around Calgary, those were the crucial seats that gave the UCP such a high floor that enabled to deploy resources to the urban fringes of Edmonton and Calgary that won them this election. So this was an election that shows you that the rural voters, despite we often see the growth in cities in these countries, in these states, is still top dog. And with that rural-urban divide that is particularly still important as well.
But for now, that is it for the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. Do join us again next week when you're breaking down the results from Spain's mammoth set of regional elections ahead of their newly called snap election. And as always, we'll continue to bring you up to date on the world of politics and elections from around the world. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Ballot underscore Talk. And please do leave us a rating or review or simply tell your friends about us. You can also email any feedback or comments to about at gmail.com. My name is Chen Han, and until next time, we will speak to you soon.